me. That's very long. We're going to jump right in. I want you to hear from the beginning and the end that there's a conclusion to this song. But the conclusion comes after a lot of struggle. And I think, I think that many of you are in the struggle, the first half. And so I hope and I pray that the Lord will use this uh, to meet you exactly where you are right now. The conclusion is verse 1 and then the end again. So hear it in that context. This is Psalm 73. A song of Asaph. That's who wrote it. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me... My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore His people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there any knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then... I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far off from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. A few psalms have meant as much to me as this one over the years. Especially over the last 15 years, I remember what at least seemed like the very first time I ever saw this song. And I'll give you the scene. It was, it was a really perfect scene if you, if you just saw it. I was actually on the beach with the Bible in my lap. It was like the perfect Instagram picture. I would have looked so spiritual if Instagram was around back then because I would have had the Bible in my lap, the ocean in the background, and there I am reading Psalm 73. 
And it looked like I was being very spiritual, but while what I was feeling in that moment was not spiritual. It was not godly. It was I, I was in a really bad place. Here's the scene. Um, that summer, I had uh, this was the the summer between my freshman and sophomore year of college, which many of you are headed into that exact summer this year. And I had a choice that summer to do one of two things. One option was to stay in town. I went to Troy University. I had an option to stay in town and be an orientation leader for the whole summer and help uh, with my fraternity to do kind of rush events and all those type things and do orientation. It would have been a great summer. I would have worked and made some decent money and, and had a good time. Or the other option was to go on this somewhat of a mission trip slash conference. Imagine if we did a conference, but it lasted like the whole summer. It was like that, but we, we were at the beach and we took jobs. This was with, with a ministry I was involved in in college. We would take jobs. So I literally worked at Wendy's that summer in the beach, at the beach. And every night we would have kind of Bible studies and different events. So here's what happened. Probably about midway through the summer, um, I was just down. I was down. I didn't, didn't like where I was. I was making some new friends, but I was really, really envious of what was going on at home. And I felt like I made a mistake. Every time I would talk to a friend back home, somebody doing orientation, somebody doing the fraternity stuff, they just were having a lot more fun than me. <laughs> they were. They were having great parties. They were making more money. They were getting ahead in their classes. And I felt like, to a degree, God had abandoned me. But I was doing the spiritual thing. Like, I I went to the beach. I chose the the ministry thing. So why had God kind of been distant from me? I was choosing to go learn about evangelism, but I, I wasn't sure I believed the gospel during those days. And I was doing a lot of Bible study. But it wasn't kind of sinking in my heart. I was filled with something, an emotion that I wonder if some of you could identify with. And it's exactly what's going on in this psalm. And as I read it, I was there. It was like it was my journal in that moment. The Instagram picture would have like said, hashtag content. But like that would have been the opposite of reality. I was so discontent. So discontent. <laughs> with the ocean in front of me, with a Bible in my lap, and I was missing it. And I wonder if some of you are there. You look around the campus. You look around kind of your friend groups, people in the community, or maybe even as people back home for you even now, and, and you're thinking, did I miss it? Like, am I doing the wrong thing? You feel like you're trying to do the spiritual thing sometimes. You're involved in the campus ministry. You're maybe reading your Bible. You're even going to church on Sundays instead of sleeping. But they seem to be having a lot more fun than you. You know? Maybe they're making more money than you. They come from wealthier families than you. Maybe you're seeing those people who make better grades than you and they barely study at all. You hate those people, right? Uh, Y'all are some of those people and I don't like you. (laughs) You see the people who are in the relationship and you wish you were in a relationship. The guys with the attractive girl. You wish you were with the attractive girl. You know, you, you feel that? It's called envy. That's the word that the psalmist puts on that emotion that we all feel. And when it comes from like a spiritual place, I think it's even worse and it's multiplied because you now compare like, God, I'm doing good things for you and look what you're not doing for me. Do you see it? Do you feel it? That's where I was. I think that's where Asaph is here. 
questioning God. God, I'm here. I'm doing the Christian thing. I'm doing the campus ministry thing. I'm doing what I thought you wanted me to do. Why do I feel so lonely? Why do I feel left out? That's what the psalm's all about. And he recognizes that at the beginning in verse 2 and 3. He says, But for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The emotion pinpointed in verse 3 was exactly the emotion that I was feeling that summer, and I felt a thousand times since then. Didn't get over it that summer, unfortunately. And it's the dark emotion called envy. Now, um, envy is different than jealousy. I, w- I want to work through those differences in a second. I don't have my outline on your paper, but it's two points tonight. It's two very simple points. The first is viewing our lives through envious eyes. It kind of rhymes. <laughs> viewing our lives through envious eyes. And the second point is going to be a very simple viewing our eyes, viewing our lives through God's eyes. But in this first is we need to work through the difference between envy and jealousy, viewing our lives through envious eyes. Envy, by definition, is the desire for something or someone that another person has that we don't have. Got it? A desire for someone or something that another person has that we don't have. As, as one um, book put it, they call it, it's a resentful desire. In other words, envy is the opposite of contentment. It's the antithesis of contentment. It's this feeling that I deserve this thing or this person or this position or this praise. And since I'm not getting what I deserve, then I'm filled with resentment toward anyone who is. That's envy. Jealousy is a little different. Jealousy is um, a desire to protect what you have. And you don't want anyone else to have it. See the difference? It's something that we fear could be taken away from us. That's jealousy. It's an important distinction. I think we use the word jealous wrongly based on these two definitions. We usually call what I described earlier as kind of being jealous. But it's really being envious. So we're going to really focus on envy tonight. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. What was the source of his envy? I really think it's the same as it is for you and me. He looked around and he saw what other people had going on in their lives and, and he didn't have it. And he wanted it. He resented them. And ultimately, which we'll come to, he resented God because they had it and he didn't. So he resented those people, but he also resented God. The first 12 verses feel a little bit exaggerated. Did you, did you kind of chuckle a little bit as he kind of gave some descriptions? It feels exaggerated because it is exaggerated. He's speaking in exaggeration because that's what envy does to us. It changes the way we see people wrongly. And all of a sudden we start seeing people through envious eyes and it's a, it's a bunch of lies. I actually think that social media has made this far worse for us. It's not made envy. Um, there's not more envy in the world because of social media, but there's a kind of a magnified existence for us to be envious, right? Because social media, especially I'm thinking of like Instagram, how Instagram is, is a picture of a moment, mostly a staged moment with a filter and a really nice description. But we read into that moment and think, oh man, they have it made. 
Like, look at that relationship. Why don't I have that relationship? Look at that trip they're on. Why don't I ever get to go on those trips? Look at how pretty these people are. You know, and it's a moment. But it's a fake moment, right? If you, if you Instagram, like, you know you're lying. I know I'm lying. I lie about my kids every day on Instagram. They look awesome on Instagram. They are pretty awesome. But I'll give you an example, a real example. If you follow me on Instagram, you saw yesterday that I put a picture. I got back. I was at this youth retreat all weekend speaking. It was a great opportunity. I was exhausted. I got back yesterday afternoon, and I took my, uh, both of my girls on a little bit of a kayaking adventure. Granted, it was in a pond, and I was testing out my new kayak. I posted a picture. It's kind of a selfie of me and Jordan. We're both smiling, living the dream. Perfect. I got a lot. Y'all should be envious of y'all. I got two daughters. They're so pretty. I've got a kayak. I've got money that I bought that kayak myself. I've got money. I bought myself a kayak. Pretty big deal. I'm sitting in a pond. It looks perfect. I even put a filter on it. It's awesome. And it was a really fun moment. What you didn't see is like all the drama that led up to that. Like (laughs) so much drama, y'all, over the previous two hours to get to that point. And that's after me being gone for a weekend and life at home was hard and life away from them was hard. And then we have this moment at screen. I put it on Instagram. And then right after that, guess what? Lots of drama. We fought. We were fighting about food. This daughter wanted one thing. This daughter wanted another thing. I can't have that. It's a moment. But what envy does is it, tell, it, it tricks us to think that that moment we view in each other's lives is their t- entire existence. And oh, if that was my existence. You see it? It's exaggerated. Here's his exaggeration, starting in verse 4. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Now that's a positive description back then. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Verse 7, their eyes swell out through fatness. Meaning they have everything that they could possibly have. They've eaten so much good food. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. Verse 12, behold, these are the wicked. They are always at ease. Instagram. Right? They are always at ease. They increase in riches. These descriptions are so relevant for us. It's amazing how relevant this is. Um, In Keller's new devotional book on the Psalms, which I'm going through right now, it's a great resource. I think we have one more copy out there um, for that. He says this about those verses. He said the Psalms, the psalmist's description of the elites of his day is almost timeless. They are healthy and have sleek bodies. Today we might just call them the beautiful people. They have the powerful connections to avoid the burdensome responsibilities that most of us face. Verses 5 and 12. They have been uh, what we call fortunate, but they take full credit, feeling superior to everyone beneath them. You hear what he's saying? It's the same stuff. Like, we're jealous of the people who are powerful. We're jealous of the people who are pretty. We're envious of everything that they have and we want it. He talks about... We compare the haves and the have-nots, and those people are definitely the haves, which means, makes us the have-nots. So what are you envious of? Maybe it's some of the things that I've already described, but if, it's, but if it's a body image thing, which is the case for many of us, you struggle with how you see yourself, then you're going to be envious of everyone who has a better body than you, has a better smile than you. Who Maybe you have some kind of physical ailment 
some setback, but you look around and you see all these people who are just completely healthy. Like, why? Why you? You resent them for it. You have other obstacles that come against your plans for a good life, but you see how all those people, it just seems like everything just works out for them. One thing leads to another, and it's just a good life. They're always at ease. But you just keep having obstacles. Maybe your money is tight, but those people are always rich. The good thing, all this goes away when you get older. Just, I mean, just wait, graduate college, you'll be over it. Um, especially if you go into ministry, like it's just like that. Like God takes it away. You're never envious. It's not true. It's the worst. I'd say my envy has changed over the years, but I don't know if, it, if it's gotten worse or better. Um, I, there was a time where like during seminary, I was, I remember being very envious of vacations, <laughs> Like vacate when I would have my friends who are at that point like becoming lawyers and doctors, and I was, you know, starting school again, and and uh, we had le- less income than we had for the previous several years, and they were taking trips, and it was awesome. And I remember thinking, why don't I get to take trips? You know what? Now, what's crazy is I do take trips. Like we went to New York a year and a half ago and it was great. We're planning a trip just this weekend. Kelly and I are planning a trip to New Orleans this summer to go see some friends. I take trips and I'm still envious of people who take better trips. You see what I'm saying? It doesn't work to just have more. Never. It's never the answer. Your envy's not going to go away when you do get the job. When you get the big paycheck. When you get a husband or wife. It just resurfaces, resurfaces, resurfaces. It's like that whack-a-mole game. Just got to keep fighting. But do you even know what you're fighting? Like, what's, what's behind the envy? If you're just fighting one envy moment at a time, we're just going to lose. And we are losing that fight. So what's behind it? Envy is not an other's issue. Envy is not a resources issue. Envy is a God issue. Like I've been trying to kind of get across in the last few weeks, um, the harder, deeper, darker emotions in our lives are pointing us somewhere. They're pointing us to where we're missing God in our lives. And envy and jealousy are two of the darker emotions in our lives. And they're pointing us to where we're missing God himself. And until we begin to work through what are we missing from God, we will never begin to fight envy and jealousy in our lives. So what is it that we're missing from God? It's really the premise behind our envy that I think has to be questioned for a second. If envy is a resentful desire towards someone or something because we feel that we deserve that thing, then why is it we feel that we deserve that thing? That's the question that we've got to start wrestling through. Why do we feel entitled to God's favor? Have you, have you stopped to ask that question? Like, why do we feel that we should have fill in the blank? The twisted reality for many Christians is that we are often more envious of others simply because we have a very bad theology. Specifically of God's justice. 
We think that if we pursue God and we pray and we do spiritual things and say spiritual words and go through whatever mantra and maybe share the gospel from time to time and respect our parents and we just kind of keep doing what we're supposed to be doing, then God's obligated to reward us with an easier life. He should. God, look what I'm doing for you. The American prosperity gospel is offering pastors and churches millions of dollars worth of return because that message works in our culture. The whole name it and claim it gospel is very popular. And you may knowingly reject it. And you may hear that, oh, yeah, 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 I, I'm not going to have anything to do with those churches. But might we actually identify with some of the theology behind what they're saying? You might not buy into the prosperity gospel, but I would argue that many of us still feel that God should be doing more than He is for us. That He owes us. That we're entitled. That's the prosperity gospel. No matter how we put it, we feel that we deserve better than what we have. Better health, better bodies, more resources, more money, a better job, all for a perfect GPA, another relationship. Deep down, we feel that God owes us these things. We are entitled. And it's a dark, dark belief. And until we name it, we'll never be able to claim contentment. Until we admit that we actually deserve nothing of the sort, we will never begin to realize what we have been given. There's a brilliant illustration of this. We're going to keep with the political theme of the evening. One of mine and Kelly's favorite shows is The West Wing. I didn't watch it when it was on for real because I was, I was even young back then. But we watched it on Netflix. This was like our first Netflix binge-watching show. This was right after we had our first daughter. And we watched like all of um, The West Wing over the course of like three months. Those were the glory days. Um, <laughs> President Bartlett. Have y'all seen the West Wing? Is anybody, just raise your hand if you have. It doesn't matter if you haven't. Okay, that's fine. It's about a Republican um, uh, president named President Bartlett, played by Martin Sheen. It's a fascinating show about kind of life in the White House. And there's this really important episode at the end of season two called Two Cathedrals. And here's what happened. President Bartlett believes that he's God's president because, you know, he's a Republican and that's what he thinks. And um, that's not a political comment necessarily, but it kind of is. And he feels that he is like God's ordained man to, to lead the country and that he's doing God a favor by being president of the United States of America. But when things don't start, go, don't, they don't go his way, he gets very angry. And there's this one particular moment in this episode where um, someone on President Bartlett's staff was killed by a drunk driver. And this is kind of like the icing on the cake of already a very bad season of what's been going on in his life. And they're going to have a funeral for this lady. And he goes into the chapel all alone, President Bartlett does. And he goes in there supposedly to pray. But he's just going in there to curse God. And it's this two and a half minute moving. I remember it so well the first time I watched it. It's just this incredibly moving scene where he's just kind of looking up at the sky and kind of looking up at the stained glass and he's just letting God have it. And he's telling God all that he's done wrong for him. And he gives this laundry list of look what I've done for you kind of stuff and how could you dare allow these things to happen. I want to read you some of that. Here's what he said. He said, you've you've hurt my son, but what did I ever do to yours except praise his name? 
So I've lied before. Yes, it was a sin. I've committed many sins. But have I displeased you, you feckless thug? I don't even know what that means, but it sounds horrible. And he goes on this list of saying all the things he's done for God. 3.8 million new jobs. That wasn't good enough. I bailed out in Mexico, increased foreign trade, 30 million new acres of land for conservation. I put Mendoza on the bench. This is this judge. We're not even fighting a war. I've raised three children. Is that not enough to buy me out of this doghouse? And then he begins to speak in Latin. And what he says is, am I really to believe that these are acts of a loving God, a just God, a wise God? And he says to God, to hell with your punishments. I was your servant here on earth. I spread your word and I did your work to hell with your punishments and to hell with you. It's this really moving and dark scene in the West Wing that actually won them a lot of awards. That episode was the most popular episode. And they won tons of awards because of it. And there's something to that, I think. I think the reason it resonated with people is because we kind of feel that way, too. Aaron Sorkin, the writer, put to words what certainly unbelievers feel when things go wrong, but many of us feel the same way. As Christians, perhaps you feel that you could go into a chapel and scream at God and say, was I not good enough? Was this not enough for you, everything I've been doing? Is that not enough? We're missing something. Behind our envy, behind our jealousy, what are we missing? And how do we get to it? Our viewpoint has to shift. We need to begin seeing the world not through our envious eyes, but through God's eyes. And that's what happens in the middle of this passage. And everything begins to shift for Asaph. In verses 16 and 17, I don't know if you heard it, but there's a major transition. I don't know if there's a more powerful, dramatic transition in a psalm. When he is overwhelmed, he is exhausted. He even said he wasn't going to talk about it because he didn't want to hurt others and, and cause them to doubt. But he was quiet about it. And he had this moment in verse 16. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and I discerned their end. What happens? Someone took Asaph to church. That's pretty much what happened. He literally went to the temple and everything changed. After a lot of struggle. That's what he said though, right? He said he literally went into the sanctuary of the Lord and he began to see things differently. Now, it would be really silly for me not to apply this very directly right now. This ain't the sanctuary. Like what we're doing is not church. But there's something about the weekly meeting of God's people on a Sunday that can change your perspective. And actually, like, I think this is kind of embedded in our created existence, the six days and the one to rest, because God created us with a need to be refreshed. And what He's given us over time is the local church where that refreshment can come. And so let me just say very bluntly, if you're missing out on that, on a weekly basis, if you're not involved in a local church as a believer, then you're missing a promise of reflection and change of your perspective. Like, we can't argue these first several verses without coming to the place where things changed in our lives, too. 
I'm not saying that to guilt you. I'm saying you need it and I need it. We desperately need. I'll be honest with you. As a pastor, I get really tired of preaching. (laughs) And I do. I fill in a lot on weekends. And I start to fill it after a time. I need someone to preach the gospel to me a lot. I need to go sit and sing songs and not be on and not be responsible and just receive. I need to be changed. I need reflection. We, we do. We desperately do. So we went to church. And what did he learn? He learned that things aren't what they seem. He's putting on different glasses now. He's seeing the world through God's eyes. Though the wicked, he says, celebrate for now, one day their lives will end. Though they may know everything they want to know now, they have everything they want now, soon they will have nothing if they continue apart from God. Their bodies may seem to be without pain now, but soon their existence will be one of suffering. Though they are celebrated now, soon they will be forgotten. Here's what he said, verses 18 and 20. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Here's the reality. For anyone who's not trusting in God, slippery places, swept away, fallen to ruin. But I think what changed for Asaph is an honest reflection where he went into the sanctuary of God and he says to himself, and me too. This is not just the promised end to the wicked. This is actually the destiny for all of us. If it weren't for God's intervention. This is actually what we all deserve. We think we deserve prosperity. We think we deserve to be rewarded for our efforts. We think we deserve relationships for peace, for high test scores. God owes us that. But the reality that led to Asaph's salvation and is our only hope is to know that we deserve nothing actually but separation from God. That's what we deserve. Why? Because of our envy, actually. Because of our arrogance, because of our pride, because of the sin that's underneath all of those sins, we are separated from God. We deserve to live that out. That's what we deserve. The reality of Psalm 73 is without God's intervention, I am set to ruin. I am set in slippery places. I am swept away. I am despised. I am naturally an enemy of God without hope unless, unless He intervenes. But guess what? He intervenes. And that's why Asaph comes to this conclusion that is an incredibly different place than he began. Because grace by definition is getting something you don't deserve. So, let's pause. Go back to our earlier question. The premise behind our envy is that we feel that we deserve something better than we're getting. But the answer is understanding that we simply don't. We are not entitled To any of those things. What we are entitled to is what our sins have brought us. And that is devastation and ruin. That's what we're entitled to. To get anything else is simply grace. 
And we see that in Jesus' life over and over and over again. Because what we deserve is punishment for our sins, yet God sent Jesus into the world to actually punish Him on our behalf. You see, that's grace. What we deserve is separation from God, yet Jesus went into death where He was separated from God the Father for a time. I don't know what that was like, but I know He said, why have you forsaken me? Why? Because what we deserve, Jesus got on the cross so that you would have to never know His separation if you would simply trust in Him through Jesus. That's what we deserve, but look what we've been given. We want riches? We have riches. Plenty in Jesus. We want a better view of ourselves? We have a better view of ourselves presented in Jesus' righteousness and not our own. We want comfort? We want someone to meet us in our loneliness. We want hope and perspective. You've got it all in abundance in Jesus. That's why Asaph comes to this brilliant conclusion, a beautiful one at the end. when he says in 23, Nevertheless, I am continually with you and you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Do you believe that? Do you believe that that could even be true for you? That you could ever come to a point where you confess, whom have I in heaven but you, and there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. That is, there's nothing on earth I desire more than I would desire you. God knows that we struggle to believe this, y'all. I'm not asking you to walk away tonight and be like, okay, I got it now. I'm done with envy. But for you to walk into the reminders that God's built into your life so that you'll continually be reminded of the hope of the gospel to serve as your antidote to all moments of envy and jealousy in your life. Here's what's interesting. Is that God describes Himself in Scripture as a jealous God. It's kind of weird, right? He said jealousy is protecting what you have. You don't want somebody to take it away from you. There's a righteous jealousy. And I would argue there's moments in our lives where we can have righteous jealousy. But God is a jealous God. What does He not want to lose? What is He committed to not losing? And that's you and your affection. Do you know what envy is? It's something else taking the place of what only God has offered to you. He doesn't like that. He wants our affection. He's a jealous God, and He can be. And He's perfectly jealous. And so, here's what God will do. And I think this is true. I see it in Scripture. I see it in my life. Is that God will put us in places, give us opportunities, give us suffering, so that we will know that He is all we've got. That we would actually come to the conclusion, Who have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth I desire besides you. God is jealous for our affection, and so He will continue to put us in places so that we can only come to that conclusion if we're trusting in Him. Let me illustrate this with um, one of my best friends. One of my best friends in life, 
and has been for the last several years, is a 90-year-old widow named Janet Poole. <laughs> Janet's awesome. Some of y'all met Janet in Utah. She was in the church where I was a pastor before I came here. And I got to be with Janet when her husband of 59 years passed away, Ed Poole. Um, I got to be a part of his funeral, and I sat with Janet hours and hours and hours and hours over the next several months and couple of years, and we literally cried together a bunch. We would listen to the funeral message from Pastor Tim over and over again, and she would just weep, missing her husband of 59 years. And Janet was a believer. Ed was a believer. There's something that happened, um, a conversation we had that blew me away about a year and a half into this, where we were in her living room one day, and, uh, and she said, I've never been more content in Christ than I am right now. And I asked her, I was like, how is that even possible? What do you mean by that? Because I knew Janet's health was suffering. She's 90. She's had heart attacks. She had a stroke. She, went par- she was paralyzed for a time. Um, this was all after Ed died. She's lost her husband. She cries over that every day. She's lost many friends. She just lost another one last week. One of her best friends died last week. You know, that's her life right now. She lost a lot of money after Ed died. Some things kind of fell through and she lost money. Like, and she says, I'm more content right now in Christ than I've ever been. How is that? You know what she's saying? She's simply saying the very last verse of this passage. But as for me, it is good to be near God. As for me, it is good to be near God. What is God to you? Who is God to you? Is He your deepest riches? Is He the place of your most real happiness? Is He the one who meets you in your loneliness? Is He the one who still cares when you're not perfect in class? When you don't bring home that 4-0? Is He the one who forgives you when you blow it again and again? Is He your comfort? Is He your hope? Is He your satisfaction? But for me, it is good to be near God. There's so much more we could say about this. I would, I, I would love for you to take this sheet home and read this psalm every day for the next week until we meet again. I think it would encourage you tremendously to just read this and read this and read this and come to these same conclusions and pray that God would lead you there. And as a result, you know what might just happen is that very last line, as for me, it's good to be near God. I made the Lord my God my refuge so that, there's a so that, I may tell of all of your works. After this whole thing, this wrestling, this struggling to believe, the result is, I'm going to talk to people about it. (laughs) Because it's good to be near God. Not out of guilt, not out of force or demand, but because I've learned what it is to be near God. And where He used to keep His mouth shut, now He can't keep His mouth shut. Because look who God is to Him. Let me pray. Lord, I love that hymn that reminds us and points us to these truths. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face and then the things of this earth will 
grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. That's our prayer and our deep need right now. It's not more rest, a little more sleep, more study time. It's not the right job, the right relationship. Ultimately, it's not even healing or, or um, peace in relationships. It's, it's you. We need more of your glory and grace. We need more of your presence. We need to know what it is to be near God and make you our refuge. Surely you were good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, and we're not pure in heart. But Jesus was. And you treat us as if we are pure in heart, and you see us that way, and you forgive us. Thank you. I pray that we will tell of all of your works. For your glory and our good, in Jesus' name we ask. Amen.